Hi guys, just a quick message ahead of the next podcast and unfortunately the next few podcasts. There was a technical difficulty that I have only now discovered on editing, which is the issue when you're editing a bulk bunch of episodes and way after they were recorded. And so, yes, unfortunately, my microphone wasn't fully recording properly. It was only recording a portion of the actual uh, input. So it was very muffled and poor quality. It sounded like I was in weird some amphitheater or something. I've now been able to boost it and get it to sound at least at the same volume as the other guys. But it's definitely lacking in quality, at, um, which I'm pretty gutted about. Uh, you know, I'm very gutted about it. It's also the fact that it's the end of the ranking episodes and these are going to be affected as well. I've listened to a bit of them. They have the same issues. So, yeah, just to make you aware of that, um, going into this episode, that uh, it's just an unfortunate thing that's happened and I've, I've learned my lesson. But anyways, hope you can enjoy the rest of the episode and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. And welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another thrilling, tantalising episode of the Bond App Project. Ranking Bond continues. Here we are discussing the villain layers. That's right, if you've got a, a, a layer that's in a volcano, you're eligible for this discussion. Uh, or a train that's, uh, yeah, from Goldeneye, I can't like no, no hints. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think you have to get out of there, let's face it. Uh, and joining me for this one is two of the Bond aficionados, Steve McCall. A very good afternoon to you both. And Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry. Good afternoon, guys. We're once again not joined by Francis Murphy. He is seemingly on assignment. Um, that assignment seems to be very relaxed as in lying in bed <laughs> probably uh, <laughs> who knows but uh, yeah so it's just the three of us here to discuss our favourites as well as our least favourites if there's any uh, and that I'm not sure um, if you guys is anyone you want to highlight that don't work so yeah the Bond villain layers this is a, a rich tapestry uh, across the franchise one of the things they're known for right from the off at Doctor No uh, it was established the supervillain has to have a supervillain layer, and the more extravagant, the more outlandish, the better. And yeah, we are here to sort of pay tribute to that by discussing these in detail. We call these ranking episodes. We're not really ranking them. I just realised we've been doing so many of these. This is just talking about our favourites, giving a couple of no- nominations for um, honoured, honourable mentions, and maybe your favourite. Okay. Let's kick off then with Gordon. Where, what uh, villain layers do you want to talk about? Well, as a man of the sea, having grown up um, at Oceanfront House and like uh, just always using ferries and just growing up in that environment, um, maybe you can guess what particular villain I'm going to go for. Oh, Ellie like, Carver's the, the stealth ship, yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Um, oh, right, okay. Oh, that's weird. But, um, oh, the, the, oil, the, oil, ah, the oil, the oil thing, um, the, the, the oil rig, rig. Oil rig, I've never. Of course, I the oil rig. 
Um, no, um, it will be it will be Carl Stromberg and his Atlantis oh, space. Never seen that one coming. You caught me there, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, um, I love it. I think it's um, it's so unique. It's so very bonding, and it was so very nineteen seventies. We we talked before about how Spy Who Loved Me. It was a film. It was just needed at the time. Uh, not that I'd have a big problem. I like Man with the Golden Gun, but I think uh, the something big for that film to something just very different and I think it was like Ken Adam is very best as production designer he said how he was going for creating creating the actual sets first of all um, giving them he said he was always giving them a linear shape and he wanted to try something different with a lot of curves so he just came across with something very unique and of course this is it's pretty much this was about the same year as the first Star Wars film so I don't think it would have been influenced by things like that it was it was just so different, you know, and then the, the actual exteriors of the base um, were quite well done. Uh, model work, like giant models. Um, I've seen a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. But inside, I mean, f- the first... First of all, I want to say Stromberg is just, again, one of the sort of ultimate megalomaniac villains where he sits behind his, his wee console in different rooms. He just pushes buttons and... The I think the opening scene in particular really, really excited me as a kid. First of all, where um, it, it, Stromberg works out the insider in his organization, his secretary that's been um, feeding the microfilm out to um, like Fakesh and all the you know these people out in Cairo and letting them steal information. He finds out who it is. She goes into the lift. This this young woman. He all he does he. As he does for so much of that film, Stromberg, he just like reaches a, f- a webbed finger out, pushes the button. She goes f- flying out a hidden shaft in the, the left into a pool of, you know, and gets eaten by a shark. It's just, it's just so very bonding. Mm, yeah. Uh, if you're one of the designer, uh, one of the designers on the, on that, uh, base, you know, you, would you have questions about that? It's like, what's the purpose of us introducing this sort of, uh, Removable floor on this lift. Is there, is there any reason for it to be needed to do that? Is that not? I know. <laughs> it's so heightened reality, isn't it? Um, but it's done the right way. I wouldn't say you know it's like tasteless or there's the, you know you don't want the the villain and their their setting their layer if you like to become you don't want it to become tired where they're always doing the same thing and yeah. it, you know they needed I think as well you every so often you need a, a, like an aquatic Bond film we hadn't really. Had like a properly bond under the sea setting since well, kind of, and you only live twice. Not a, a really kind of aquatic one since Thunderball. I think you need that, and it was just that's as well. That's Bond's um, setting. You know, he's a navy man. Obviously, you see him like in the submarine as well. But I'll again just the, if we go talk about the actual sets, I think it's just such a beautiful thing. For I would love to, you know, similar to what you get, you know, the likes of Deep Sea World and your Steve or any of these great. Um, like walk through aquariums. I find that sort of thing fascinating. I love Stromberg. I guess you could say it's like his main room. He's just surrounded by windows where he sees like all all the sharks, the rays, and all the all all the fish and and, and creatures at the bottom of the sea going past. And it's like so that's him in his element. He's clearly an absolute madman. The ocean is an obsession to this guy. He has these kind of like. You know, Drax and Goldfinger and all these villains. The interior—it's so lavish. It's like he wants everything turned up to eleven. He's got um, these, you know, nice furnishings. These—I like the—I like the the kind of typical Samaritan the Bond films, like like you only live twice, like the volcano base, for example. You've got the, the steps 
um, like sort of, I think it's kind of spirally steps. Um, Stromer's got a wee kind of lounge area down the bottom, where he's, I think there's maybe like other fish in a tank, and he's sitting there. And you get, you know, great. So you get you get Jaws appearing there as well. You then get to the scene later on. There's like there's so many layers to that layer, <laughs> and uh, you know, there's the big that's such. I mean, it must like, it obviously cost a, a bomb to to actually come up with this set, but the the big kind of the big room with the shark pool these these metal walkways you, you know it, it was something we hadn't quite seen before in, in in the previous movies i don't and I, again you got to ask when jaws turns up why is that you know what would stromberg actually use the magnet for you know that's where again it's heightened reality but it's kind of you know why it's theirs for the skag at the end with jaws getting carrying his the you know his teeth but the, i mean I, I would go back to the fact that Spy Who Loved Me was one of the first Bond films I saw. It just it had such an impression on me, and yeah, they did something very different. They just it worked. I mean that it, it was the right thing at the right time. Mm-hmm. And Stromberg is just he's just such a madman, you know. He always has his little console. He's even got I've got to say as well the the escape pod, which just happens to the, the main element. He's almost got the same taste as Bond, like. He, the main thing in his escape pod is like a big bed and there's a, a bottle of Bollinger and a champagne chiller. It's, <laughs> I think it's just total bond to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a classic. Um, so, so does that include the super tanker? Would you say that's separate? I wasn't really counting the Laparis. I, I, yeah, I was considering that separate, but I think it's bloody impressive. I mean, that was the that was actually the probably at that point the interior of the tanker was the biggest set yet in in the bond catalog mm-hmm. that was that was the one i think they had to get stanley kubrick in to help um get his consult him to um to come up with ideas for the lighting yeah i forgot about that that's right yeah after uh 2001 i think wasn't it um yeah it's such a profound thing as well to and it was like i guess you're kind of recycling the um, would have been the 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 Goldfinger plot a bit with um with Spy Who Loved Me, but or no, sorry, recycling you only live twice to an extent. Like the big tanker swallows up the the two submarines, similar to obviously the the thing with the you know the the spacecrafts. But it was it's quite it's an ingenious idea. I think just the the I like the investigative part that Bond had to do the fact that he knew there was something up with the the tanker's bows. I remember he said Daniel's like there's a strange shape to his bows. So obviously, it's it's the only tanker in the world that can swallow up. First of all, it's the largest tanker in the world, and it can swallow up submarines. It's just it's such a profound thing. It's like, and then what what kind of lets um, Stromberg down is like I said, I don't know how. He um, gets to the point that he thinks there'll be a new world under the sea, but I, I just love his obsession with the ocean. That's him and his element. Um, going back to Atlantis, Atlantis is his lair. You get the impression he's so kind of absorbed in his little sea world that he would he would never actually go back to the mainland. He doesn't care how claustrophobic it is. He just wants to be underwater. Hmm. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's interesting. But you were right bringing up the tanker because that yeah, the tanker's really impressive. Yeah. Just as a as from filmmaking craft, it's it's impressive. It's something that I feel is a through line in the Lewis Gilbert trilogy as such. Like the three films that he made are the ones that really I feel showcase the epicness of Bond villain layers. Obviously, starting with You Only Live Twice, and yeah, um, we'll mention that surely uh, very briefly. 
but uh, and, and continuing through to Moonraker. Uh, so definitely there's an epicness that he, he sort of benefited from, as I guess, with the Ken Adams sets and the money they had at the time for those films. But uh, yeah, that's definitely definitely some of the best of the Bond villain layers. Is, yeah. uh, we'll come to you, Steve. Cool, yep. I am going to stick with the epic, stick with the Ken Adams, and I'm going to go with the volcano from You Only Live Twice. Yep. Which I think is one of the most spectacular looking pieces of cinema possibly sort of in existence one of the in terms of sort of film history it just particularly at the very end of the film that fight scene where you've got just bodies piling in they're piling down on ropes they're coming in through doors blasting guns there's every imaginable weapon and kind of fight going on it's the size of it that just again it's the ken adams epicness he really i think it takes a certain type of brain to kind of be able to envision something that enormous and pull it off yeah and it's a spectacular talent that i think ken Adams must be blessed with because it, it is just it's stunning it's just it's just yeah i don't know that that final scene of that film it's what makes the film for me like when i think of that film i'm thinking of that final thoughts i groan when i think of a lot of the other things that happened before that <laughs> But yes. that, that final third is fantastic, and it is the thing where I'm torn on that film because you think of that, and there's a few other things obviously that were great. There's a couple of moments I like the little Nelly sequence and all that, but that, that final act is great. And even though Sean Connery's not on his kind of most energetic, he's not on his full kind of giving it his all, it's still a feat, mostly because of that set and the way it's lit. and everything that's going on it's so you buy into it you it's a real yeah. set, a real location yeah it's incredible Bond almost doesn't have to be on his best because there's just so much else going on around the the sort of extra casts the sort of mass army of them do an absolutely phenomenal job and you're right it's the way it looks the way it's lit mm-hmm. it's just for for what is meant to be kind of the inside of a volcano yeah. it's just it is it's fantastic the only quibble i think i had with it was watching it back and there's the point, obviously, because Blofelds and Bond and whatnot are in a sort of separate room almost watching on. And uh, Blofeld says, close the shutters. And someone shuts, he's just a little Venetian blinds. And then he says, now we're impregnable. <laughs> Where those shutters made from? Because, yeah. like, uh, up until now, we are <laughs> capable of being blown up. Let me just close these Venetian blinds right now. they can't get us. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. They should have used but that on it, the uh, the Star Wars Death Star because obviously there was that main flaw that they were able to fire into the Death Star. They just had those little Venetian blinds that would have that's stopped the laser getting in to blow up the entire Death Star. It's, it just sums up. It's just typical Bofeld being overconfident. He was pretty confident Bond was going to get killed in it. How many attempts did it take in the end? Yeah. Out of all exactly. these films? Yeah. His. Yeah, his. Uh, overconfidence comes through on that. Yes, there is no way that anyone can possibly stop what I'm doing now. And then he gets stopped. Yeah, like, if you think but, of the trajectory of those films as well, like, to the way that we're going, obviously Goldfinger had that sort of elaborate meeting room that we laughed at uh, with all the sort of, like, fold-out plans and maps and all these kind of things. It was yep. pretty cool. I mean, that was a big set. That was a, a really intricate set. There was a lot going on there. It was kind of novel for the time. Then I think they opted again for Thunderball. Between the MI6 layer, layer um, base, I suppose you call it, and um, the meeting room for, for Blofeld, um, yeah. they sort of 
it was parodied in Austin Powers with the seats falling into the floor from when you press the button. Yeah. Um, but then to, to the way that they escalated to the that volcano base, that's what became like, you know, the super villain volcano base became like a kind of a shorthand, doesn't it? Like that sort of over the top villain layer. That's absolutely. That, they've never really beaten it and they've equaled it probably with Spider Love Me and Moonraker and a few others. But Moonraker, yeah, Moonraker probably maybe might going into a space station uh, is probably the one that just, you know, but as far as impact, yeah. audience impact, you know, uh, industry impact, I think, you know, that was huge. Yeah. Huge. That's it thing, was. That was 1967. That was, I know it was late 60s, but I mean, that's, that's kind of almost what makes it more amazing because you see something like that now and part of you would think, okay, fair enough, there's enough sort of studios in the space. And the other part of you would think, oh yeah, that's what you can do with CGI and computers and stuff like yeah. that. The fact that that was 1967, that, consider what technology they had then compared to what we've got now, the lack of any kind of computer stuff, it all had to be done for real, nothing is fake. It's, but, I mean, there's model work and stuff in there, obviously, but for the most part, it's all actors, it's all real stunts, it's, everything's real. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, I think, combined with that epic space just makes it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. And I think as as well, Steve, I, um, the great points about the volcano base, like the Atlantis base, is so many layers in different rooms. Obviously, the main thing, um, the biggest, the best part is obviously the main room where the actual rockets get launched from. But there's... I love the the room of the the piranha pool. It's just it was so ahead of its time that again you've got that classic kind of villain walkway, which was obviously parodied in Austin Powers. It's the same thing I mentioned that Stromberg has. You know, it's like yeah. the metal steps without the without the. Of course, it doesn't have actual no, no, um, no, no safe, banister. No safety railings, nothing. <laughs> exactly, I know, and the, and it happened, and of course, like like what Drax had in the Aztec, you have to have the one kind of bit of ground where it's a trap you know he has Blofeld as his his special little pedal under his desk he he waits for a certain person to cross this rock or this walkway at the right time and of course he uses it on Helga Brand when um, and then you know she falls to the piranhas it's that and the de- just the decor there like the kind of cave setting is you you can tell you can tell like the caved wall and also I think this maybe might have influenced the caverns level in, in the GoldenEye game there's the the wee room which I think Blofeld and Blofeld just squirting Bond at gunpoint with I think Mr. Osato and it's the bit he shoots Mr. Osato it's like a cave this walkway is I think that's really like the caverns and gold now that was a great set I think as well well two sets my divorce just went I'll let you you can just talk uh, if you want yeah I'm not sure if you remember that Steve um, it's the classic thing you get with Bond villains where you think he's he's gonna kill the obvious person but he suddenly it's the person you're not expecting so he, he pulls out the gun and he goes goodbye Mr. Bond but he then turns the gun to Mr. Osato and shoots him yes that's right that's right it's yeah, all that kind of surrounding stuff just kind of adds to it, I think. Yeah, but I was, yeah, you were right, but you only live twice. I, I was going to bring up the volcano base as like a sort of second choice, but I, I thought one of you guys would probably pick it anyway, so I thought I'll go with Atlantis. Ah, uh, you're right, because it's the the one other one that did come to mind, because there's obviously there's the Atlantis, there's the volcano, and there's Moonbreaker, I think, is the other kind of yeah. epic one. Yeah. Um, which I think we'll probably end up coming to, but um, yeah. I also, Steve, I was going to say the cool thing is that 
Um, Blofeld with his volcano base, it was like Drax with his space station. It was, well, it wasn't, the space station wasn't exactly well hidden, but they're, 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 they're clearly very ominous things. I mean, if the authorities ever knew about them, they would be pretty interested. But the likes of, see the likes of Stromberg, his Atlantis base, it was like MI6 with Universal Exports. It had a cover story. Like, he was meant, I think Stromberg claimed to be a legitimate businessman. With, and he did marine research and shipping services. So I think, like, that, you know, I don't think the authorities were too worried because they must have thought, that, oh, that's, you know, that he's a billionaire. That's just, like, his marine research facility. But really, like classic Bond villains beneath that, <laughs> there was some really ominous things going on. Obviously, plans for world domination. <laughs> that's just what I think the earlier films were a little bit cleverer because they thought, right, we need to hide the villain's base somewhere. Let's put it you know, let's hide it in space with sort of devices to divert signals. Let's hide it in a volcano. Whereas yeah. you get to the later films, they go, oh, let's just, just make it invisible. Uh, like, yeah, well, the Yanis space is Yeah, GoldenEye. Yeah, that's, uh, GoldenEye was the other one that came to mind, because obviously it's a sort of ominous-looking satellite in the middle of the jungle. It's, it's kind of cleverly well-hidden. It's not just sort of lazy. Even, oh, well, well, hide yeah. it. Even the, the armoured train that Yanis uses, which is kind of more of his yeah. day-to-day villain layer, I suppose. Um, obviously, coming to me, I, I could go on about that. I'll just I'll mention it here. I don't have to spend my, my time on that one, but I do love that design of that train. I've talked about it on I think, one yeah. of the other podcasts, certainly. A great idea. Um, yeah, for me, it, it's, I was, it's a toss-up between Scaramanga's... Uh, Island base is it Phuket? The uh, man of the golden gun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, just this sort of like one man island. It's probably that, that I would give it to. Is it? Is it? This why a lot me and and you live twice with my other top picks. But uh, Scaramanga's base. Um, you know, I don't know how Knickknack is able to to operate everything. Um, certainly they don't really go yeah. into that in the film. Um, you know, but. Uh, somehow it, it's doable, and yeah, what an island base for being a super villain. And you know, if your main occupation, uh, you you know, you spend your time, your main hobby is to lure unsuspecting or us suspecting henchmen in, and have them, you know, in a sort of uh, lethal laser tag esque, you know, uh, obstacle course. Then that is the best place because that's got it and. That's what he gets to do for most of his time is just yeah. perfect his assassination skills and sip some great caviar wine and eat some nice food. And it's also got a solar, solar power uh, energy uh, laser as well. You know, we can't uh, you know can't forget that. I think yeah, I think it's uh, I think that film for me has got a lot of issues. It's not one of the highest ranked ones certainly for me. It's a low end scale. Scaramanga is one of the best things about it, but I also think that um, that idea was great. I do like that, and it's got that exotic feel that the early Bond films had, the Connery ones. Um, being set there, that location was fantastic. Yeah, so I think that's what I think set Bond apart from a lot of movies of the sixties and seventies. Just you know, the fact that first of all that Bond had to go in missions in really exotic locations, but that. It was just it's so iconic. I mean, that is such a popular tourist destination, that island, yeah. and it's hardly even changed since the film. It's, it's kind of colloquially known now as James Bond Island, isn't it? Because of yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Um, There's a few islands, I think, that are sort of dotted around the world that have that, oh, right, uh, okay. that reputation, <laughs> that name. But 
no, there's. I think that's that is absolutely one of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the way the early Bond films, I think, brought those exotic locations to audiences, who obviously back then traveling to these places wasn't as easy as perhaps it is now. So the way they made these places look, mm-hmm. um, where the sort of layers are contained and stuff like that, it's just it's another sort of. I think all of the films we're going to reference in this particular discussion are probably going to be the earlier ones because that's yeah. where they did location stuff yeah. and layers and set design just so much, so much better. Yeah, that was the the, the lovely combination that like you just touched on it there. The set design with a great location, like that right there, is what they nailed. And as much as they they get other things wrong, but you cannot fault them on a lot of that stuff. Um, no. I think the the, the sort of Ken Adams' era was fantastic. And Peter Lamont, to be fair to him, this is a much more subtle, uh, kind of, probably slightly more realistic. Well, on the, I apart, mean, is it not? Apart from the Ice Palace. Oh, God, you see the response for that, right? Well, that, <laughs> that, that's the thing, that, that film, it's like everyone fell short a little, didn't they? Like, it just feels like yeah, everyone, exactly, I, 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 yeah. everyone let the ball fall, or whatever the analogy, sports analogy you want to use there. Like, it just it's just a shame because they you know that these people everyone the writers and um, obviously the producers and uh, and everyone involved stuntmen all that you know there was all a lot of great people involved but that doesn't mean to say they always hit it out the park to keep with the sports analogies uh, and so that one obviously is the one where they the excess they lost track of what makes a good Bond film and they were trying maybe too hard to try and nail homage to older Bond films I think that was a kind of 20th you know whatever 20th film we need to get all these references and all that kind of stuff but anyways we're talking about that film we're talking to come back to the set design that's another way that they fail but Peter Lamont definitely I've been watching the commentaries and he's been on the the world is not enough one I just watched last night and it's uh, it was good to listen to him he kind of really appreciates it some of this, the stuff and, and the world is not enough he designed obviously the sets and obviously Azerbaijan a lot of the film is set in Tur- some of it in Turkey a little where they could the very political situation you couldn't film a lot there but he was uh, it was interesting hearing the sort of little different I'd never you don't notice a lot of it it's very subtle but when you do it's actually really good um, there's a lot of craft there that I, I quite like that it wasn't as showy as some of the Ken Adams stuff certainly and is memorable totally. in a way but yeah, I think there's certainly something to be said for what Peter Lamont has continued through the Bond films. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he, I think I mentioned before, he he became the new Ken Adam. He did some amazing set design. I think another, I think this was another Ken Adam one, another great early one, Steve. Oh, I imagine Secret Service, Bofeld's Secret Hideaway, Peace Gloria, Gloria yeah. his mount, mountaintop re- retreat, just yeah. uh, in the top of a yeah. mountain that is in the middle of nowhere at this impregnable unseen fortress and i think like so many of the the great bases they kind of there's a there's good music to build them up because when when bond gets escorted there in the helicopter there's um i can't remember if it's a version of um maybe we have all the time in the world but there's there's that um there's a a kind of music to give it that kind of exquisite feel it's the same as like in stromberg's bass they use a lot of actual like real well-known classic classical music pieces which it just adds to the sort of ornate feel yeah. of the 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 area definitely but i was just gonna say i just the whole the whole idea is just it's like i don't know if the nazis actually had these but just like a this fortress at the top of a mountain it's like i don't know if where eagles dare was the year before and that 
there was a Nazi castle at the top of a mountain there. It's kind of like that. It's like the kind of thing that a megalomaniac would do. Well, the, the Nazis built the eagle's nest for uh, Hitler. Um, Aye, so it was, yeah, you're right. Was, what, it was real, yeah. What was that? Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, you, yeah, I'm sure I heard that. Actually. Or Hitler, had, he certainly had some kind of he house. Got, he, got it, he got it for his birthday. Um, I can't remember if it was right before the Second World War started. I think it was 30, maybe 39 or something like that. Oh, God, what was it called? Berchtesgaden? Berchtesgaden, I think. Um, I remember it, it from Band of Brothers, because uh, they, they in, the, in the series, um, they took Berchtesgaden and obviously got to enjoy all the, kind of, all the riches that it had, all the, all the portraits, all the wine, all the, the, the alcohol and things like that. It was, you know, and you see the documentaries, it's a lovely, you know, area. And that's why the Nazis, you know, gave it to Hitler. Um, but that idea, yeah, definitely you're right. Like, the Lucas Gloria is probably the closest to that kind of like, so impenetrable, you know, location. Um, it makes a, you know, a fantastic villain layer. And different again because you hadn't seen anything like that in the prior films, you know. So different. You go, you know, volcano layer, and then the most opposite thing of that is a sort of mountain, you know, snowy mountainside, you yeah, know, retreat. Um, yeah, you're right. And I just think of um, it's a very short sequence, but again, it's the love of Golden Eye. The caverns essentially, I feel, are the there's a small like one minute section of the film where they walk through what I think is the water cavern area. Yeah. That's the I, mean, I mentioned that when I, Steve, about um, they had that for like a very short sequence yeah. and they only live twice volcano. So I guess the game must, they, they must have I'll, I'll seen always, both of them. Yeah, maybe I, maybe they've mashed the two together because it's like it's random, but I, I, I kind of thought the design of the, the doors and things like that were from the... Um, from on Hermantis, you could be right. I'll need to look into that. I, yeah, I think so. And you know, Doctor No as well. There's a room Bond and Ryder go through some dark kind of cavern again, very briefly. So it might, you know, it's maybe a composite of all of them. But the doors were certainly in one of them. I can't remember what one, but mm-hmm. I that I mean that level of the game is just so Bonding. Oh it? yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, so some great levels there. I would say honourable mentions probably too. We, we discussed Doctor Nose, the very first one. Um, it's a crab key, uh, yeah. base. You know, that's the classic, the danger wheel. Uh, obviously kind of rudimentary as, you know, looking at it from now, but you have to imagine in 1962, some of that was phenomenal. And that set up obviously the super villain and the super layer. Um, you know the, the sort of the, what that looked like and what you the expected expectation going forward. It's incredible. Um, I think that's what I love about a lot of the old films is obviously nowadays most sort of control of uh, control over weapons or anything bad is done by computer. But back then, the sort of image that they had was sort of huge rooms filled with sort of knobs and switches and. <laughs> wheels and stuff like that and the, the two films where you do see that are obviously Doctor No is the, the absolute best of his, obviously the classic and I mean I suppose obviously Goldfinger as well because you've got as well as the the meeting room with all the mafios and stuff like that meet I think it's, it's underneath that mm-hmm. where the, the scene with the laser takes place Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, it must be, I imagine it is. I thought yeah. it was because it was down there because I think Bond was hiding and he gets, Is it? I think it's there that he gets captured. And there's that kind of big control room with scientists and 
sort of massive sort of panels of switches and yeah. reels yeah. of tape for some reason and things like that. And I, I just I just love that sort of looking back at what they thought because I think they obviously thought they were being quite futuristic. If this is how a, a supervillain would operate yeah, with yeah, yeah. all these banks of um, yeah. switches and sort of buttons that do stuff. Yeah. I love it. And I mean, I, I have to give an honorary mention to Doctor No and the Danger Wheel because it is <laughs> yeah. it's, it is the classic yeah. from it. And I mean, my, my favorite part is obviously it's the lack of explanation. Why is the arbitrary danger number 25? That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. One man's job is to spin it. and. <laughs> What what is he controlling with that? It seems to be that he's controlling the, the pit of boiling li- yeah the the danger which appears to be the boiling liquid underneath him. Which there's no explanation as to why that's there. But if it yeah. goes above twenty five, then it boils <laughs> too much. But then alongside the massive danger wheel is an emergency stop handle. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. You know, Steve, that was going to be my exact next point about the the big kind of pool, big pit of like it's like boiling acid or something because they have the same thing in man with the golden gun and i think i'm sure one of the others as well the villain yeah, there's no explanation to what it is you just know oh, it's dangerous and of course uh well dr no falls in there and the man with the golden gun yeah. that the technician cry he falls into the big um <laughs> the big pit there but you don't there's no explanation to what it is and why it's dangerous yeah yeah, yeah it's i great. love that though because you just it's it's basically just there as a setup for how the the villain yeah. is going to beat his death and you kind of know it but it almost builds up that excitement like, oh yes yeah he's gonna fall on the, the boiling <laughs> stuff he's gonna is he gonna dissolve will he burn ah. will he just drown you don't it's really like batman sure isn't it yeah remember the first yeah. batman with jack nicholson's joker at the beginning falling into there's no explanation i don't think there to what this terribly dangerous substance is but he falls in there it's like you know that it's a similar kind of concept, I think. Yeah, you just well, I suppose a chemical plant, I think it was in that. I suppose you just your your mind wanders as to that can't be good for you. That green stuff. Yeah. Why aren't these good. things? Why don't they have like have a lid in them? Why aren't they covered up? I don't, <laughs> is there a chemical reason they need to be out in the <laughs> yeah, open? Yeah, yeah. The safety guys really are not filled away around here. Uh, let's face it, HR needs to step in here. Uh, yeah, some great stuff in those early films uh, if you wait you're just kind of try to think of notable mentions uh, the other one I was going to mention um, I suppose slightly more on a comical sort of level but it's the fillet of soul from Live and Let Die ah, yeah. where everywhere Bond sits is a trap mm-hmm. <laughs> which again I, I watched it all back again this morning and just forgot how good it was how he's I mean the the beauty of Live and Let Die I think is it's a film where for possibly the first time in the series it's almost as though the villains constantly have a one-up on Bond. So yeah. you think Bond thinks Bond's going about his sort of business suave and overconfident, thinking he's he's on top of the situation, but actually everyone's got one up on him. Yeah, and that kind of I think you consider it a layer because it's obviously it's just a restaurant, but it's almost a kind of front for the the bad guys. And obviously Bond swaggers in, sits down, thinks he's going into kind of pump them for information, and before he even starts, he swivel drowns. And he's with the bad guys. And then obviously he goes back for a second time and thinks, right, I'm not sitting there. So it's a different <laughs> yeah. table. And then falls through the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That one-upmanship in that particular location just sort of does it for me. I almost wish they just went for a third one where it's like it's sort of sky <laughs> fight, fire them up into the sky or something like that. <laughs> I don't just, know. That would just be perfect. If he did that, you know, like the, what do you call it? I suppose the villains would be dead, so it wouldn't happen. But you know, at the sort of end title, the way the Marvel films do this thing at the end, where Bond's like takes, you know, solitaire to a date or something. 
Oh, we'll go and see you. Like that would happen. That would be a. <laughs> they just want to ruin his date. Yeah. Of course, typical Bond villain fashion. What I love, Steve, about the fella so is the the behaviour of the bartender. He's he's a bit kind of hostile to Bond at first. The first time he he makes sure Bond sits in that definite place, and then he just kind of casually walks away as if nothing's happened. And he actually drinks Bond's drink, <laughs> the the bourbon that I was intended for he... Bond. Right. Yeah, he hands him that. No, Bond hands him this sort of money and says, I want some information. Takes the money, downs the drink, just walks <laughs> off casually. And then the second time around, when he falls through the floor, within seconds, the waiters are there with a new table, set of chairs. The placement is exactly as it was. They're down to the placement yeah. of the glasses on the table. Mm-hmm. They're just so, it's the efficiency. It's like, right, he was never here. I like as well. I mean, I guess because you're talking about kind of what makes a, a, a layer. You could even say, like, as a brief point, I mean, like, if you're talking about the. The um one of the allies layers are like the MI6 space. You, I mean the 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 M's office is just so iconic, especially well. Obviously, great the 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 one from Goldeneye onwards, but the the original M's office, like the double padded doors. I love, and obviously M is you know his pictures on the wall. You know of like I don't know old battles and stuff. It's just it's like that is just M setting. It's such an old school office. And I think it worked well how they, they brought it back for Rafe finds his um I like as well it's I like when you see him like sitting on, with, like smoking his pipe especially and I like how it was the same they kept the same set when Robert Brown became him as well is it's, it's such a like old Victorian style book cabin it's like my dad when he was when he was still working had an office where it wasn't quite as plush as that but he had the, that same style like old bookcase it was like well, these old um, leather-bound books that never ever got used. You would never see him have one of them out, but they were always there. It was like, um, you know, there was that that decker was just so important. And obviously, you've got Money Penny's office outside of the obligatory hat stand, and Money Penny even in Fury Eyes only. I love how um, like her gadget was. She opens the filing cabinet, and a little um, like makeup mirror pops out. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think. Obviously, yeah. It isn't just villains that get the great layer. Some of the great set design has been to the, the MI6 characters. Uh, what do you guys make of the, the World Is Not Enough and the uh, Scottish castle kind of base? I don't, I, I don't think we're too up on that, really, Steve. Steve? Hello? Sorry, that was my daily internet cutting out, <laughs> as it does every fucking podcast. I Honestly, don't know why. It's weird. It triggered again when somebody said the world is not enough. Honestly, like <laughs> <laughs> even my laptop hates the film. Yeah, amazing. Uh, I was just, uh, I was just saying, yeah. What, I was just saying, obviously, I don't know what the last year it was, um, but uh, obviously, there's some the set design for the the MI6 kind of. Uh, bases have been has been just as good as the, the villains there. Sometimes one ups it. Uh, obviously they've they've changed it about. But obviously they mixed it up. The world is not enough with a sort of more Scottish kind of castle layer. What they do? I know you weren't keen on that right at the time. I can't remember if you liked it or not. I remember it looked brilliant because it was that kind of setting, almost sort of Glencoe type of thing. The out the exterior in particular looked incredible. And I think, I mean, inside as well, I just, I think they went a bit overboard with the Scottish stereotypes. The wall was full of portraits of yeah. sort of people in sort of Scottish layered style. And that then yeah. obviously led to the uh, bagpipe machine gun. Yeah. So yeah. It kind of, it went from looking incredible, which is what you want from any kind of layer or base, I suppose, down to, oh, they've gone too far. 
and they had that picture of Bernard Leo in the back of the back, I didn't realise, like, as if he was that, in a lord yeah. or something like that. It's great. Well, it was nice, actually. Yeah. It was a little kind of Easter egg. That yeah. was, see, that was, that was a nice touch. I love the Easter eggs of Bond is the, uh, the things you really need to look out for like that. It's, it's very subtly done carefully placed in the background. But I like that setting. It's, it, although, yeah, I, you are getting into Scotch stereotypes a bit. Probably, I think there's a stag's head in the wall somewhere, but yeah, it's it's kind of that sort of setting was made to be an MI6 space, and I, I can go along with the idea that a top secret ser- top secret secret service organization will have you know hidden layers and you know play well bases bunkers and places that you wouldn't expect them to like his covers. You know, I think that's quite cool. So we've kind of talked mostly about the Moore era and the Connery era for the great sets, and there's a couple in the Brosnan era. Uh, I would say Goldeneye satellite dish. Uh, and the, the Arbor train. Um, Tomorrow Never Dies, the stealth ship is okay. Like, it's kind of, it feels like a slight homage to The Spy Who Loved Me in that sense. Yeah. Um, but it's not quite as original or memorable either. Um, There's not, some originality yeah. to it. Yeah, it's alright. I think, um, I like the idea of you need to have some films with a moving base. I suppose Largo kind of had that more simplified view of the yacht, but I think this. Stealth ship, sorry, because the stealth, there wasn't anything, again, there wasn't anything quite like a, it was a good concept. I don't know if I like the concept. No, I, 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 yeah, I completely agree. The concept is cool. Maybe it's just the actual look was fine. Like, it was nothing, it wasn't bad. It was just, you know, it felt maybe a little like we'd seen it before a little, just a bit tighter, it was a much more yeah. tighter, tighter set. It was just like banks of computers mostly, and I don't know what that big thing was in the end where Bond was battling Stamper. It was it was almost like the base of a crane or something. Where it was maybe just the sort of like um, the launch pad for the missiles. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I get what you mean. I suppose they they, they must have deliberately given it a dark setting because obviously the Atlantis base was kind of light inside. The volcano base was light inside. It was all right. Yeah, yeah. fair point. Watching the documentary that not the documentary, the commentary for it, the director um, he'd mentioned that. It was a nightmare to shoot in because it was so congested and tight, and it was a quite hot set. I think I can't remember if that was the reason, but it was um, sort of. He said it was quite stressful to, yeah. to film a lot of that. I was just about to say, even the we'll see even the ice pals from Die Another Day, although it's a bit over the top. It's it's kind of it is bonding. I feel, but it's like why would the ice not just melt? Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where the look of it is relatively kind of cool and interesting, but. It's only yeah, like the other ones, you know, the other films. You you suspend disbelief a little. Drax's plan makes no sense. All these kind of things, like, but they look amazing and all that, and you kind of get on board with it for a bit longer. And then it's only when we have to film, you're like, this does not make a lick of sense. But the dying of the day, like that lasts even shorter. Like you're literally in ten sec, like a few minutes, and going, really, this doesn't make it. It looks kind of cool for that shot there, but it doesn't really work. Like it, you're kind of it, it. really tries your patience with that stuff to the believe the believability factor. But yeah, what about uh, the Dalton? You know, those two films they don't really maybe Sanchez's Casino was uh, interesting set. It felt it was again stripped back. It's, it's, that's the more realistic film, doesn't it? They suffer in this respect, don't they? That Casino was. Um... I mean, maybe the most kind of extravagant one we've seen yeah, out of all the Bond films. I think I was thinking more actually, Steve, that it wasn't. I don't. I don't know if the overall land was owned by Sanchez, but the kind of it's like a big monastery at the end that that Professor Butcher has. But then 
I think it's part of it. Sanchez, he's big drug complex. Mm. Oh, yeah. the, certainly the deck, the actual, um, I think, is it a monastery? It's like this. This really, it's like I know they said it was a the 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 big um like place in the hill. It was some kind of a it was a real location. It was abandoned, but that's the amazing thing about it. This it was like I saw a white elephant. Um, I don't know if it was like built. It was almost like Egyptian pyramids. It was just something really out there, but it was abandoned in real life. It's just they were so lucky how they could actually get that for yeah. use. For yeah. a Bond film, uh, it's incredible. It would have been sitting for ten years, just sort of more or less unused. Okay, uh, the Craig era. Very quickly on that. Again, that's this is where the realism and the grittiness of those films I don't feel lends itself to the you know extravagant layers. I, I'm not you know coming up with anything in my head too much. No. That's striking me like uh, I mean Spectre did that was um, Blofeld's laid in that I mean is that kind of meeting section that sort of big open meeting with uh, Blofeld's entrance that was kind of cool but yeah we're, it doesn't pale in comparison to all the stuff we've mentioned previously I think the Craig era went for locations over sort of lots of locations over one big set uh, villain's lair yeah uh, that was noticeable yeah, Dominic Green's one's quite impressive, I think, though, because that's just how that's out in the middle of the desert at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, the, was that the hotel made of explosive material? <laughs> was it? It was a weird design. Like, whatever it was, it, it was, was like... like a um, it was Minor, like this very... Yeah. I, it was a very sort of like... It was a very kind of linear structure. It, was, it looked like a group of flats or something. It was really weird, but that's it was good how it was kind of weird because... There were all the the like classic villain layers were all kind of quirky mm-hmm. as well, but yeah, I think as well. Did you mean? Did you say something about the big table and the Spectre meeting room, Steve? You said something about a table. Uh, well, I was just thinking of that set. Uh, I remember that. Yeah, the, the table. Um, there was something grandiose about that setting that felt harking back a little to the the older uh, films. I felt that I like that section of the film. So I like how um, there's a few Bond villains they have an unnecessarily huge table. It's like, um, well, that no, that was that should have been a big table because it, it, there was loads of Spectre agents together. But it reminded me of like going back again to Atlantis. Stromberg had this huge dining table, and it was only him that sat at it. <laughs> and then... I was yeah, going to point that out. The amount of Bond sort of villain places that that's all kind of functional except for one massive yeah massive dining table. Uh... And there's usually only one or two people sitting at it. It's usually just a, a statement, isn't it? Usually it's the equivalent of the guy who tries to make his engine sound really loud. It's just, you know, maybe they're small. Overcompensating. Yeah, yeah, overcompensating. Not in doubt. One, one of the funniest things, because um, I, I forgot, I was going to mention again, but if we go back to Hugo Drax's, he's not in there for very long, but the Aztec wear, how it has the big python pool, is just like so megalomaniacal. And how there's, there's the one rock that like launches Bond in the pool, but also do you remember? I think I mentioned it last week. Remember Drax is the secret laboratory in Venice, but within a matter of hours he manages to turn it into the most ornate drawing room ever seen with all these all this oh, beautiful yeah. decor and pictures on the wall, and it's it's just outrageous. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. That film is really stretches the believability that he was able to do that in such a short space of time. Uh, that is some major contract work that he got done in what a few hours or a day or something. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's quickly just see if there's any that really don't make the cut for 
you know, what what was our weakest? What's our least favorite? Is there any that not it's not came up in conversation? You feel? I feel like Diamonds Are Forever for me is uh, one that is one of the weakest. I feel so plain. Uh, yeah, I was gonna, that was the one I was gonna say. Yeah, it's, it's just it's a tired formula, really. I think that they were they were looking for something. The same with the whole plot with the launching missiles, launching was it launching rockets from space? It was just it was a kind of tired formula, and it was actually I think because I think they were actually going to have the final battle in some big salt mine, and they hadn't, they couldn't get permission, so they went to the oil rig guy. It was just it wasn't really anything to get excited about. It was very plain. It's, everything about that film is just resting on their laurels. I feel like that was where they were really not... Again, like we spoke about Die Another Day, I suppose, it's maybe a similar thing. They just... I don't, I don't feel like they were really on their A-game at all um, across the entire sweep of categories, maybe. Some of the music is really good, to be fair, but yeah, uh, the bass, not, not one of my favourites, I would say. Mm. Um, Gordon, is there any others for you? That was the main one, yeah. really. I mean, there's not, there's none. I wouldn't say there's. Um, what about there's Christatos, some Christatos. This one. I, I was. I just suddenly thought of him, but he. Well, yeah, because it's unremarkable. Because I think he really just is a yacht. But mind you, that the monastery at the top of the mountain, I think's kind of iconic, but similar to <laughs> Honor Majesty's. For me, the the actual base is completely kind of average, but it's the fact that it, it's got that great sequence of Bond having to scale the mountain that's really exciting about it. So yeah. that gives it something, I suppose. But the actual base, I mean, I think that represents him. I think he's kind of dull as a villain. Um, so that's probably why it doesn't really strike a chord with me. Steve, is there any that uh, you want to talk about? It's literally just the Ice Palace from Die Another Day yeah. that's the one that came up as just, it just, I mean, there was nothing wrong with it. It kind of works in concept and, um, yeah, as a, as a, in principle, but then you've got that sort of major flaw of you just start a small fire and the whole thing is taken to its knees. So it's just, it's, uh, it's that is beyond the realms of sort of sensibleness. See if they were able to kind of like, explain that it's not actually ice or something, that it's a substance that it's discovered that looks like ice or something. I don't know if maybe that would work. I don't know how you would do that and why, but um, that feels like it was needed to at least just get past that. I would almost have believed that, yeah. For one thing, how did you get the bloody electricity to work? I mean, you've got all these chandeliers, all these lights. What is ice? Ice is frozen water. You don't have electrical cables and lights surrounding <laughs> water, surely? Yeah. You can't do. I have weirdly enough stayed in an ice hotel in Switzerland. <laughs> oh, there we go. I'll just. Uh, yeah. That's it just... does. It does work, but not to the extent that it does in a in Die Another Day. Mm-hmm. There are other solutions. He could have looked at other viable solutions. I think for his base. Okay, uh, I think that covers the majority of the Bond franchise. We've kind of really, really delved into that one. Good. Nearly every film at some point must have got a mention. So yeah, that's been fantastic. Uh, if we were to collectively say agree on, on a, the most iconic villain layer, let's just say, let's just name our, our, our. Well, I'm sure we'll all agree. So let's just all say at the same time right now. One, two, three. You only okay, live twice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Atlantis. <laughs> I was uh, going to go yeah, Atlantis, but two, I can, two on um, one. <laughs> I can uh, I can go along. You only live twice because it was certainly really up there. I think yeah, yeah the volcano base is 
it's massive. It's amazing. Yeah, there we go. Uh, that's good. <laughs> two, two, two of us on the same page. I, I was thinking we're all going to say completely different ones, but <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Okay, dokie, guys. Thank you for joining me. This has been fun. Uh, I'm going to go back to my armored train, which will then take me through the Invisible Ice Palace and uh, into the space station in space, obviously. Uh, so yeah, thanks guys. Yeah. That's fun. good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see you. And for the for the last of our normal ranking bond episodes uh, at the Capiche website, uh, listen to the rest on Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and we'll be then ranking the films after the next podcast coming up. So thank you guys for listening to this one. We'll see you next time. The Bond Daft Podcast. Bye. Quickly, I'll uh, 10 second view of The World Is Not Enough this time, Steve. Right, let me figure out which one is The World Is Not Enough. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, um, Christmas Jones. Oh, yeah, that's right. Christmas Jones. Uh, <laughs> terrible name. Awful star. Would you like to check my figures? Uh, uh, great song. Yeah. But there's not a lot else going for it. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that.